In George Lucas's early film, the futuristic dystopia THX-1138, there's an image that stuck with me my whole life. Come on, stand up. We are only here to help you. You have nothing. Watch it. Come on now, we don't want to hurt you. Let go. We won't harm you. We only want to help The movie features robotic police with unmoving, implacable metal faces, committing upsetting acts of violence, beating and torturing people into submission, all while calmly telling their victims that everything's fine. 3947, could you get him from where you are? It is a jarring juxtaposition, but something about it always seemed familiar. I think about it often. I thought about it last week. In the early morning of Tuesday, June 22nd, a huge mobilization of cops, city workers, and private security moved into Trinity Bellwoods Park to evict the people who had made a home there throughout the pandemic. People who had no other home and were scared to expose themselves to the COVID outbreaks, crowding, and rising amounts of violence in the city's shelter system, with conditions one shelter resident told CTV News were like a rat cage. Into a shelter space for health and safety reasons. Uh, but we have hotel spaces as well. I cannot go into a hotel space for health and safety reasons. Okay. I'm safer here in the park. This is where one goes when they're homeless, especially during a pandemic. To hear the official line, this was an act of humanitarian outreach. To anyone paying attention, it was a militarized eviction of people with nowhere else to go prying their fingers from the tenuous bit of safety they could grasp. A police presence reminiscent of the atrocious G20 summit in 2010. Still, over and over, the official channels were robotically repeating platitudes about safety. They're restoring the park. No one's home was being taken away. Everyone was being offered a home. The police weren't there to evict the residents. They were there to protect everyone from the protesters. Bullshit. They ripped people from their homes, discouraged protesters, and intimidated journalists. Standard operating procedure in Hogtown. It's what my colleague Sean McAuliffe, in his star column the next day, called the vilest kind of doublespeak. Police speak in a very calculated language that intentionally obscures the connection of their actions to their outcomes. It's a way to protect themselves from liability. It's discouraging to see city staff talk that way, and it's maddening, though not uncommon, to hear elected representatives talk that way as well. Even the most progressive councillors couldn't bring themselves to condemn the removals. They just wished they had happened in a gentler way, a friendly, more humane eviction. For as much as I love this city, it is a fiction, a small narrative within the broader bedtime story we call Canada. It's a story we tell ourselves over and over until we believe it. As we approach Canada Day and in the wake of further shocking proof of the genocide against Indigenous people, it's important to remember Canada is very young and built on stolen land. Toronto's million-dollar Victorian mansions, the ones we like to think speak to our rich history, the ones who the encampment evictions are meant to serve, are roughly 70 times younger than the communities displaced when settlers colonized this place. 
This city, where the visibility of poverty bothers people more than the poverty itself, this brutal colonial playground for the rich, is not the natural order of things. At least it doesn't have to be. That's just a story we tell ourselves over and over until we believe it. Lies work like that. You repeat them against all evidence, against what everyone can see and hear and feel, against all reason. You repeat them Everything will be all right. You are in my hands. Until everyone's convinced I am here to protect you. You have nowhere to go. You have nowhere to go. Or they're too exhausted to argue the point anymore. This is Spacing Radio. Broadcasting from a place of despair and disappointment in my city and the people who govern it, I'm Glenn Bowerman, and you're listening to the official podcast of Spacing Magazine. Coming up on the show, I speak to Carrie Potts, one of the authors of the new book, Indigenous Toronto, Stories That Carry This Place. But first, Lorraine Lamb is a member of the outreach team at Sanctuary in Toronto. She was in Trinity Bellwoods Park, working with the encampment residents, when the police moved in. She tells us what she saw that day and reflects on the city's approach to unhoused people. Stand by. So, Lorraine, I wanted to begin by just asking about the work that you do and the work that Sanctuary does in Toronto. Yeah, so I um, am an outreach worker at Sanctuary. To me, the title of outreach worker feels like a, a glorified way of saying that I get to connect with community members and build relationships with people in different contexts. The community that's at Sanctuary they are people who are generally either homeless or underhoused, um, people who may be dealing with mental health barriers or realities of addiction. Um, and often people who are experiencing marginalization because of the systems that are in place in our world. And so you were at Trinity Bellwoods, the encampment, uh, when the uh, mass eviction took place. Can you sort of mm-hmm. walk me through your experience that day? Yeah, so I got to the park quite early at about five in the morning. And when I arrived, I was pretty shocked to see the amount of police and how things were already set up. So they had a command center that was set up um, down the street. They had the road closed at Crawford, so the the road right beside the park. And then at about 6 a.m., I had counted like about 50 police officers gathered in the parking lot. They were unloading literally like I witnessed like three busloads of Private security were coming. There was corporate security. And then they were also set up on the roof with drones and and all that. And then it felt like the police just kept showing up. Um, The mounted police were also um, sort of stationed at the other end of the park. Um, I also saw a lot of fencing that was brought in um, by the city. And so it was clear that they were going to be fencing things off. So... And that was early in the morning. So I, I know I definitely was feeling quite overwhelmed. And honestly, like, I felt like this was really excessive 
considering that there was only about like 25 or 30 residents in the park, it just felt like a really extreme amount of um, preparation and, and violence that the city was prepared to incite. Were you in the park, I mean, 5 a.m. early, were you in the park because you heard that there would be a police presence or were you just checking, is it part of your regular checkup with the residents there? Um, I had heard that we thought um, that there might have been some police presence and that there possibly was going to be a clearing. Mm -hmm. But I did have a co-worker who was there even earlier than I was. And uh, when I got his text, I definitely made it a point to be there. And so, uh, you know, I, I follow your, your social media and, and I sort of watched you live tweet as, as this day progressed. And, mm-hmm. you know, I, at one point uh, you, you said they were literally kettling people, uh, much like the G20. Yeah, so it was, it was kind of, I mean, I think what was really shocking to me was that when the private security arrived, they were sort of... Um, stationed around different parts of the park as if they were supposed to be sort of like a human perimeter. And so when I actually did ask a couple of the security, like, what, what are you doing? Like, what is your role here today? I mean, some of them weren't even sure, to be honest. And then a couple of them told me that they were told that they were supposed to basically guard the fence to ensure that nobody would cross such fence. And so I think that when we saw the fence go up, I think my, my thought originally was that they were going to like ask or force people to leave and then fence the park off so that it's not accessible because that's what I've been seeing, you know, across the city, even the park beside sanctuary, like that's basically what happened. Mm-hmm. But instead they started putting the fence up while people were still inside. So there was a number of us who were inside the fence area. I mean, it wasn't fence when we arrived, so we were just talking to encampment residents, asking them like, "What is it? Like, what do you need right now? Like, you know, like what would help you feel safe? Like, what what is it that we can support you with?" And as we were around the tents talking to people, we noticed that they started putting up the fence around us. <laughs> and so, the messaging that the city told a number of my friends and coworkers in the space was that, "Well, there's going to be." Like, we're not kettling people. You're going to have an exit and entry point. But that very quickly was not the case. And it very quickly became like people could only exit after a while. Mm -hmm. But then they were also not letting press and legal observers enter the space. So, yeah, it was actually quite intimidating in my perspective. Right. And and that's also interesting. Like, I... As you are surrounded by these police and security, you're you're on the phone in contact with the city, and the city's telling you, "Don't worry, everything's fine." Well, we were in the so There was a couple of city workers on the ground, like mm-hmm. they're the leads of the encampment team. So there were a number of people at that point who were not actually entirely in the fence area yet, saying, "What's what's going on here? Like this is like very very similar to sort of the the kettling process." And a lot of us were like, "Is." are they trying to do the same thing? And they were basically like, oh, don't worry. Like, you know, you can get in and out as you please. And then very quickly it was that you couldn't get in. And then very quickly it was like, they were very selective about who was able to to gain access into the space. The line from uh, Mayor John Tory has been that the, the police presence uh, there was in response to protesters. Now, mm. if, if he means that they're in response to protesters, 
that specific day. Mm-hmm. Uh, you, you've documented, and other people who were on the ground have documented that that's simply not the case, that the, the protesters arrive later in the day. But mm-hmm. is it possible that, you know, be, because we have seen other evictions and we've seen uh, people working to defend the rights of the encampment residents, uh, like in Lamport Stadium, for instance, mm-hmm. is it possible that the police reaction is, is due to that? I mean, sure, if that's what they think, but I think the language even that's being used to frame the situation right now about protesters, I think is also wildly not reflective of what's happening. Mm-hmm. So in the case of Bellwood, for instance, this past week, the people who were there early in the morning, we weren't protesting. Like, we were really there to support residents. And, like, if residents were willing to accept offers from the city, whatever the offers would be, we were there to essentially ensure that the city was listening to residents. So we were really there to support. So I would say we really weren't protesters. Like people who were there were, were supporters and they were like rights defenders, essentially. Mm-hmm. I think that if the city was saying like, oh, you know, we're bringing in the police because of anticipated protests, to be really honest, like the ratio of police to non-police presence on Tuesday was maybe about like five to one. Right. Because I remember distinctly at about 9 o'clock, there was still only about 30 or 40 of us um, supporters of the residents. And by then they were, like, they had already, like, over 50 or 60 police officers and counting and, like, busloads of security. So, like, I just think that if that is your response to, like, what you saw for protests, like, also, like, the amounts of people who, you know, protested, like, wearing masks and the people who protested lockdowns, those protests were significantly larger mm-hmm. than what I witnessed and then the numbers that I saw on Tuesday at Bellwood. And yet the police reactions were very tame. There was just a few police bike cops who would ride around, you know? So to me, it's not really about that. I think it's really just about this continued criminalization and perception of poor people and those who are really supporting those who are homeless. And so you you work with people in these encampments. You're friends with them. You You talk to them every day. What do these encampments mean to the people that have have made a home there? These places are community for people. And and I don't just mean community in like this loosey-goosey, you know, kind of way, but like people have saved each other's lives in these spaces. They really look out for each other. I I have witnessed residents give each other their coats off their backs in the middle of winter. You know, they look out for each other. They've reversed overdoses. This is like a sense of community in terms of like acceptance and, and you know, not being isolated. And I think that is like the basic human need that we all need. And some of us get to experience that perhaps in more socially conventional ways, ways that are more privileged. And others are experiencing this outside living in a park because that is their co- like only option right now. But I, w- I returned to Bellwoods on Wednesday Mm-hmm. And like the entire community was decimated. People are now scattered across the city in different places. And these are people who have lived together for the last year, if not longer. It was really horrible, honestly. It was really displacing and really violent. And I th- I would say that like, I know the city says, you know, they did this for the safety of people. I would say that nobody actually felt safe. Like none of the residents felt safe and they surely don't feel safe now they really didn't do anything to, to promote that or support that. Right. And, and the city would also say that 
we don't kick anyone out without offering them, uh, you know, some sort of alternative. But mm-hmm. w- what are those alternatives? And can you help people understand why they're not necessarily viable alternatives uh, for these people, uh, especially at a time of COVID, but sometimes just in general? Yeah, like I think the city's languaging about we don't kick people out without giving people options is not actually an accurate picture of what's happening. So, for instance, at Tuesday morning at 7 o'clock, a number of us were asking the city staff on site, like, what are you offering people? And we were told, well, we don't really know actually what's available yet. So they showed up to the park that day with no clear offers for people because they themselves didn't know. So that's really concerning. Mm-hmm. And by the end of the day, like the offers that were made put to people, like one person went to a respite, which is a congregate setting, yep. which is really unsafe during COVID. I believe maybe a few people went to um, hotel shelters, which might work for some, but for a large number of people who are in these encampments, they don't work for them because it is isolating. We know that a lot of people, close to 50 people have died in these systems, in these spaces in, the, in this year alone. And so we also have seen that data has shown that violence in these spaces has gone up, right? And so people don't want to go to those spaces. It's not safe for them. And they're also run as institutions, so they're awfully re-traumatizing for people. So those were some of the offerings that were being made. Somebody was apparently offered housing, but that wasn't actually offered through the city. It was through an outside organization. And then a number of people actually were just displaced to different parks, So really, like, the city's goal that day was, you know, clear the encampments. So, yeah, sure, they did that. They cleared the park of the tents, but they did nothing to actually offer any kind of long-term solutions for anybody who was living there. Instead, they've just played a game of whack-a-mole and scattered everybody. Right. So they they temporarily fixed the quote-unquote problem of the visibility of homelessness, but Mm -hmm. they, they really haven't found homes for people, broadly speaking. Yeah, absolutely not. Mm-hmm. But they, they did manage to take some homes away. They sure did, yeah. <laughs> yep. Um, I try to, you know, be fair and balanced. That's, that's my job as a journalist. Um, mm-hmm. You know, there, there have been things, some things throughout this pandemic that have excited me in terms of the housing crisis. So, you know, the things like the modular housing that got fast-tracked, that sort of thing. I do see things being done in service of finding people places to live, supportive places to live, getting them the help they need. But then, you know, you also see things like what what happened in Trinity Bellwoods um, mm-hmm. and the response to the encampments in general. So mm-hmm. I was wondering, you, you've got eyes on the ground. You're, you're a part of this community. What are your thoughts about the city's response to the housing crisis in the middle of a pandemic? You know, what, what are your takeaways from this year and a half now? Yeah, you know, I, the city for the last year keeps saying that we're all in this together. And it's very clear that we're not. I think for a long time, the city was able to get away with just kind of sweeping people under the rug who were homeless. We saw that, for instance, in the middle of winter when like volunteer places like out of the cold would happen or the temporary warming centers would open where like, you know, people could just be warehoused inside these spaces that are congregate settings or often overflowing people are just sleeping in, you know, gym mats beside each other. But because of COVID, that wasn't an option anymore. And so it forced the city to actually have to do something. But what we're seeing is that like there's there's still no actual long-term plan. And I know that the city often 
prides itself on saying like, oh, we, we've made, you know, 20,000 engagements with people on the street, but we don't actually know what engagements mean. Because from my understanding, let's say I talk to you right now mm-hmm. at 1230. Great. That's one engagement. And then if we chat again later today at 4 p.m., that's going to count as another engagement. So engagement is a really, really flawed way of actually looking at how meaningfully that the city is working with people. I also think that the city talks a lot about like, oh, you know, we have all these housing plans in the making and that's great, but they're not happening fast enough and with not enough urgency. Like the housing crisis is not new to COVID. Many people have been fighting for like the need for housing for years and for years. And currently there's about 80,000 households on the wait list and that list is growing. So homelessness isn't going away. And if we continue with the status quo approach, we know that it's not working. And so Basically, what we've seen during COVID is that the city is really slow to really try to implement real solutions. And they're really reluctant, I would say, not even willing to engage with people with lived experiences. They're not willing to listen to those who are on the ground. And I think that's really, really problematic because if you're trying to support a group of people, but you're not listening to them in terms of what it is that they need, then your plans are going to be flawed and they're not going to be successful. So I think that the city's current approach is not working. They're treating homeless people, honestly, like not like human beings with right. Um, they're just treating them as liabilities to try to dismiss. And I really hope that we see some some changes. And I think what's been encouraging about this season, though, is like the amount of sort of new public engagement and interest and, and push to our local city councillors to actually act. And I, and I feel like that's hopeful. But at the end of the day, like we need the city to to, to step up and do better. Well, you you talk about um, the the push, uh, you know, to reach out to councillors. You know, I, I live, I can see Moss Park from my front door. Mm-hmm. I have a feeling that uh, we haven't seen the last of these types of evictions. So, uh, you know, politically and in other ways, if people want to support the encampment residents, what can they do? I think my my first thought is to actually listen to what it is that residents uh, want and what what it is that they need. And I think there is, you know, social media has been really helpful in that, you know, lots of different people who are on the ground and even residents themselves are using social media to express, like, what's going on for them and, and what it is that they need. And so I would encourage, you know, the general public to pay attention to those voices and really take with a grain of salt what the city is saying, because you know, many of us are able to take a city's statement and actually kind of just point out all of the the lies and all of the inaccuracies in them. So definitely listen to other voices. I think that it's also really important for the general public to talk to their counselors because at the end of the day, a lot of these decisions are, are being made at city council. So for instance, we all want shelters to be a space that's more dignified for people. Like if we want people to stay in shelters, we need to make them a place where people want to be. So why not establish like a lived experience advisory council? And so Councillor Matlow raised that in council a couple of weeks ago. Mm-hmm. And that was that was shot down. Like there like councillors did not support that. And so I think we need to hold our councillors that we vote into place accountable. We need to tell them that like, you know, what it is that is important to us because at the end of the day, we are their constituents and their job is to represent what we're saying. I think that's really important. And and if our local councillor is not doing that, well, municipal elections are coming up next year. So we need to be paying attention to that and vote people out if they're not doing their job, right? I think we have huge amount of power in that and using our voices to let our councillors know what is important. 
Lorraine, I want to thank you so much for taking the time to speak with me today. Yeah, absolutely. Thank you so much for making space for me. Now, Carrie Potts is Tameagama Anishinaabe of mixed heritage, born and raised in Ottawa, and a professor of liberal studies at Humber College, living in Toronto. She's one of the contributors to the new essay collection from Coach House Books called Indigenous Toronto, Stories That Carry This Place. I spoke to Carrie about her piece, all about the Wandering Spirit School in Toronto, and about the need for more Indigenous visibility in Toronto. Carrie, to begin, uh, I think we have to talk about Elder Pauline Shirt. Can you can you describe Pauline? Oh, describing Pauline, she's like a ray of sunshine. Mm-hmm. She is um, one of the most beautiful people that you'll ever have the pleasure of meeting. She does so much for the Native community. She's always making herself available for people, for ceremony, for teachings, for activism. She's on the front lines of protests, and she always just brings this amazingly positive spirit wherever she goes, very inclusive and open. And yeah, so she's had a long history, as you said, in activism and also in education. Yes, that's right. She started the first Indigenous-led school in Canada that was uh, school board approved. The story is sort of layered, mm-hmm. as many stories are, <laughs> but Pauline w- moved, um, she's Plains Cree, and she moved from her community into the city in the 1960s, I believe it was, and she started a family with uh, with an elder who passed away, um, Elder uh, Vern Harper, who's also an incredible activist, a lot of work in prisons and and reviving Indigenous culture in in Toronto. But Pauline was really formative in in establishing his connection and knowledge of his own culture as well. And while she was raising her family, her son Clayton started refusing to go to school as he was being taunted with racist comments by kids and the curriculum and the setting just didn't resonate for him and it didn't work for him. And, and, um, Around that time, there's a big political push for Native control of, of Native education. And so Pauline and Vern helped to organize the Native People's Caravan, the portion that came from, from Toronto. And she said, you know, they kind of presented themselves at the Parliament buildings and then a big sort of riot. The RCMP kind of treated them like they were... Um, you know, violent protesters, and I'm sure there was a few in the mix that were causing some problems, but um, Pauline was very peaceful, she said, and afterwards they gathered at what they called the Native Embassy, I believe it was just over in Gatineau or on Victoria Island in this old abandoned building, and she said, she, they said, you know, what are we going to do? And Pauline stood up and said, I'm going to start my own school. Mm-hmm. And it was sort of these moments that galvanized, and that was, I believe, it was in 1973 or 1974, around that, around those times. I think my article has the exact dates mm-hmm. um, in them. And she and she did it. And her and Vern uh, got a space at the Native Canadian Centre of Toronto, eventually. And uh, first, it was just in her own living room, <laughs> mm-hmm. and it was really run by the community. And eventually, very quickly, actually, the uh, Toronto School Board picked it up. And it's uh, it's been running ever since. But yeah, Pauline has a long, long history. I mean, she does education in so many ways <laughs> in mm-hmm. the community, too. And so that became the Wandering Spirit School. What sort of things would the students learn there? Uh, you know, what, what would they learn about? And what was the sort of, um, 
you, you know, the spirit of the teaching? Well, there's a quote that I give from Elder Jim Dumont, who's a brilliant elder in Ontario, and he talks about that you need to know the stories of creation, to know who you are. And each of us, there's some different teachings um, that speak about the importance of the gifts that each of the four colors of humankind brings that are, are encapsulated in the um, in that medicine wheel teaching. Mm-hmm. And because Indigenous culture has been so oppressed in Canada, up until 1950, it was illegal <laughs> to be practicing your culture, to be practicing your religion, to be practicing your songs and dances. You had to get a permit to just dress up and go to a powwow. And so because of that, so much had been erased and also the rest of Canadian society had been deprived of these, this knowledge, this amazing wealth of, of knowledge that these cultures had been um, you know, told they can't practice. And so this, this school was about teaching them pride, you know, showing them love. And that's the key teaching is love and love for who they are as people in all senses of the world. And just having a sense of pride in their own Indigenous identity and a knowledge in, in what that is. And one of the key teachings that Pauline built into the curriculum is that the four seasons. And so it'd be all the things that you would do on the land, the ceremonies that you perform, harvesting, the different, different teachings that would take place during different times of the year. And so that was built in so the kids... I think one of the first tasks is that they had to learn how to smudge, which is the burning of sacred medicine, like such as sage, cedar, tobacco, or sweetgrass, or a combination of the four. And and that was the first thing. And they'd learn to do, you know, give thanks every day. And that's how they'd start their school. I just thought it was beautiful. I mean, that's one thing our school, our mainstream school system, and I've been part of it for many years as a professor, is that we strip away that spirit. I think we're afraid of religion becoming part of or offending anybody, right? Mm-hmm. But it, but what do we lose in stripping away a, a connection to spirit in whatever form you think about that? And I'm very secular, but that really resonates for me. And so those little ceremonies that they learned were really about connecting people to spirit and what those what those gifts are that they bring forward uniquely as a unique human being. And so what is the legacy of the Wandering Spirit School today? Well, it's a K-12 school now. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Tanya Sank is a newly and first appointed Indigenous superintendent in the TDSB, I believe. And uh, she is the principal of the Kapapamacha Kweo Wandering Spirit School. And so what started as a school in Pauline's living room back in the mid-1970s has now evolved. Um, it used to be at the old Degrassi Junior High, sc- high School okay, <laughs> as sort of a K-8 school. It was sort of an attachment to it. I remember going to visit. I was working for Susan Glucart, and she was doing a book drive for Northern Communities, and we went there. It was a great school, but it was smaller, you know? And, and it's open for everybody. This is what I love about Pauline's teaching is that she's very inclusive. And I think the Native community has learned to be very protectionist against sharing culture because what happens in mainstream culture is that everything can be bought and sold. Everything can be owned. Mm-hmm. And because so much has been taken away, you know, when those cultural bands came into place, the communities lost artifacts, really sacred items, masks, everything got put into museum and, and sold for a lot of money from Indian agents and police and others who had stolen those items. 
And so people become very protectionist because a lot of people will come to our ceremonies and then think, oh, I can go charge people money and do a sweat lodge or whatever. Mm -hmm. So people have this protectionist mentality, but what Pauline did is she opened it up to anybody who legitimately wants to share this knowledge or learn this knowledge with their children, with their families, they can be part of the school. So it's opened up Indigenous culture in meaningful, legitimate ways in an urban center that in many ways tries to deny us of that and just in terms of how we live. So the legacy is multifold, I guess is what I'm saying. Mm-hmm. It's about uh, having now a K-12 school and also having this real connection to Indigenous culture and access to it to, for all people. So the book is called Indigenous Toronto. You opened your story with a quote from uh, Kenora elder Madeline Skeed, who said, you know, when, when she came to the city, where can you put down your tobacco here? I'm I'm from Kenora. I'm not indigenous, but I grew up in Kenora, and and I did notice when I first came here that there is a distinct lack of visible indigeneity in this city as compared to say a Winnipeg or an Edmonton or a Vancouver. And I was hoping you could talk about the the visibility of indigeneity in Toronto and and, and what to you is an indigenous Toronto. Well, I mean, I guess I'll start backwards there, and I'll start with what. What Indigenous Toronto is to me is this like super vibrant, super interesting, dynamic, diverse community. Mm-hmm. We're one of the largest in Canada. The the numbers seem to range between sixty and eighty thousand people who are Indigenous in the city, but yet we have very little visibility. The main visibility that I see is like at the centers that I go to, and like for example, the Native Canadian Centre up on Spadina and Bloor area has a totem pole out front. Mm-hmm which is funny because that's not representative of the community here who is primarily Anishinaabe, Cree, you know, uh, and so that's not, that's not their tradition, right? That's a, that's a West coast symbol, but it's one that Canadians kind of are drawn to, right? Right. Beautiful. Nonetheless, I'm not criticizing it. I'm just saying that it's interesting because we just don't have like a, a place or a center, you know, we don't have visibility in the city. And I know one of the articles in the book talks about the beautiful work that Tannis Nielsen does. Mm-hmm. She's just an amazing, amazing person. And she's done these gorgeous murals of all of our elders. I think that's on Simcoe Street. But there's so many great, great, great images on that wall. And there's so many good, uh, you know, seventh generation image makers that was at a run out of Native Child and Family Services for a long time. Uh, Jason Berg, Adam Garnett Jones were, were two of the initiators. Uh, Amanda Strong was another, and they would do murals with youth around the city in buildings, and they're just beautiful. And so the the murals, those are markers, but it'd be so nice to be able to have a space for Indigenous gatherings. Mm -hmm. You know, we did have like the powwows, and we used to have like the the Sky Dome powwow, and that's moved out to Hamilton. And we had uh, Dundas Square, we'd have Native Day, and there's powwows at Dufferin Grove and different places, but like to have a dedicated space for gathering, for dances, for ceremony, that would be amazing to have, you know, a real marker of indigenous, of indigeneity. I know that the Toronto sign had like the medicine wheel embedded in it, but I don't know if there's much else. Robert Houle did a beautiful, did some beautiful things around the city too. They're markers. I think there's some down by Trinity Bellwood that are embedded in the sidewalks. So they're markers of old riverways. I know Hayden King and and, uh, Susan Blight 
did that amazing project where they renamed some of the different streets and erected street signs. Mm-hmm. So, and that's in the book as well. But yeah, we really need to build that presence because it's a it's a founding presence to this city. You know, we're on Indigenous land. We're on stolen land in many ways, even though we're part of Treaty Thirteen with the Mississauga. It's still a contested land. <laughs> mm-hmm. Well, Carrie, I want to thank you so much for taking the time to speak with me today. Oh, absolutely, Miigwech, and uh, and thanks so much. This is a really beautiful book, and it's been an honor to be part of this, and even more of an honor just to be able to spend time with Pauline Shirt and learn so much more about somebody who I, uh, I've loved her for many years and just get to spend a, a lot of time learning about her, uh, her life and her uh, incredible work. And you can find Indigenous Toronto at The Spacing Store. One final thought, and I don't mean to be more of a buzzkill than I already feel like I am. But at a time when many people are feeling an overwhelming sense of relief, sharing their second vaccine photos and making post-pandemic plans, just try to keep in mind somewhere that the pandemic isn't over for everyone, and that the problems that grew to absolute crisis levels during the pandemic will continue long after we achieve general COVID immunity. By all means, celebrate. We've had precious little to celebrate for the last year and a half. Go to the beach, hug your parents, hold your new niece, go wild. Just spare a thought for the people who are still feeling the impact of the pandemic. And maybe email your counselors about ending these evictions. Okay, that's the show. Thanks so much for listening. Audio from this episode included clips from Toronto Stories, CBC, Shelter and Housing Justice Network, and Free Toronto Photos. And, I guess, George Lucas's THX 1138, uh, which is a great movie, and please don't sue us Warner Brothers. If you liked this episode, please tell your community outreach group, your newly sanctioned outdoor gathering, and your weird neighbor with questionable vaccine opinions. If you have a moment, please share, subscribe, or give us a rating on iTunes, as it will help us reach new listeners. I make this podcast with Neil Hinchley, who composes our music, and you can find that music on SoundCloud at Track82. That's all spelled out. If you have any questions, comments, concerns, or scoops, you can reach us on Twitter at Spacing Radio, that's all one word, or email me at glennbowerman at spacing.ca. That's G-L-Y-N-B-O-W-E-R-M-A-N at spacing.ca. Visit our website at spacing.ca or visit our city store at 401 Richmond Street West, which is open once again to masked customers. Or you can visit spacingstore.ca. In the meantime, stop the evictions. Cheers. Cheers.